Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Hey, Real Life Church, God bless you. It's Pastor Jim. It's good to be with you again. I have been out of commission the last two weeks as I lost my voice. I got a bad flu that led to laryngitis, and I couldn't talk for two weeks. Never had it that bad in my life. So I appreciate Pastor Anthony for jumping in and preaching and for the staff keeping the uh, holding the fort together, uh, and uh, appreciate all, all of you uh, being back again this week. Um, I found out something by being sick. If you If you if you tell your family, I cannot talk to you at all. Do not talk to me at all. I can't use my voice at all. And then a few minutes later, they hear you in the next room going, who's a good kitty? They stop respecting you. They really don't care too much for your sickness anymore after that. Um, but it's good to be back. My voice is still not quite there, but, but almost there. We're going to get through today is my point. And as you know, we've been in a series on the weekends talking about heresies, how to be a good heretic. We're talking about ancient heresies that the church said, hey, that's not what we believe. And yet some of those old beliefs that the church marked off are still alive and well today. Remember, I said that the Bible is a treasure map and it's cautionary tape. <clears throat> it's a treasure map that tells us where we can go to receive abundant life. And it's cautionary tape that says, hey, you might not want to go in this direction. This direction is not healthy or safe. And so when we talk about the heresies of the church, the, the false doctrines and wrong beliefs of the church, we're, we're saying, here's where the cautionary tape is. Where has the Bible and the church marked off a place that said, this is not a wise way to go? And today, I want to look at one of the ancient heresies of the church that's still alive and well. You've probably heard people say, I know a little bit about the Bible, I read a little bit of, about it, and it seems like the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. The God of the Hebrew Scriptures is the, different than the God of the specifically Christian Scriptures. So maybe they're different gods. And that was an, an ancient belief that cropped up very early on in the church, and the church rejected it. But it's still alive and well today, as we will see. Hey, pray with me. Jesus, open our hearts and our minds to your word that we might hear you and know you more and follow you faithfully. May your spirit empower our prayers and our studies. <clears throat> Jesus, help us to see those places that you have marked off uh, with cautionary tape and told us not, not to go there. Help us to stay on straight paths. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight for our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In the early days of the church, in the second century, right in the middle of the second century, around 150 AD, there was a, a church leader, well-versed in the scriptures, who rose up saying, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different gods. The God of the Old Testament uh, flooded the earth when people were bad rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, wiped out Canaan. That's the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament lets you go first in line, shares his snack with you at snack time, plays with butterflies, and always wins the quiet game. 
right? They're different gods. And he said, the God of the New Testament is a God of love. And that's the God who really is. And the God of the Old Testament is not really God. And we should reject the Hebrew scriptures. That church leader's name was Marcion. And Marcion's uh, teachings were an attempt to take the, the life and teachings of Jesus and separate them from everything Hebrew, everything tied to the God of the Old Testament. The reason he did this was because one of the biggest struggles in the early church was in identifying themselves as followers of a new Messiah who had largely been rejected by the Jewish religious elites. The Jewish religious authorities had rejected Jesus and handed him over to be crucified. And so there was a bitter resentment in the early church that said, it's their fault. In turn, the Jewish people continued a a persecution of the Christians in the early days. And so there was a lingering resentment of of the Jewish population. You, You know that if you have to begin your theological writings by saying, okay, I'm not anti-Semitic, but then you are probably anti-Semitic. And Marcion certainly was. His opposition to the Jewish people had anti-Semitic tones to it. And so he only, only accepted one of the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke. And he uh, wanted to reject several of the letters that are now included in the New Testament because they had too much Jewish influence. He believed that the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament were different gods. And the early church said, no, that's not correct. They are one and the same. And yet, I see in our world today, there's still an inclination to say they're not the same. In fact, I heard it not that long ago in the writings of a a popular atheist writer today named Richard Dawkins, who's written some bitter, angry uh, writings against religious faith. Dawkins writes, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, because he thinks the Bible is fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filiocidal, pestilential, megaloman- megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Dawkins is British, so he knows all the English. But that's Marcion's view again, that this God of the Old Testament is terrible compared to Jesus. You kind of get where this comes from. You can kind of see it if you read the stories of the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you look at the heroes of the Old Testament, they seem strong. They are warriors. They are generals. They are fighters. Remember when King David stood up to Goliath opposed Goliath to his face. Goliath was this giant of the Philistine army who stood in front of the Israelites and made fun of their God and ridiculed their their people. And David, this young man, went up to fight Goliath. And he said, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. 
All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. In my version, my movie version of the story of David, David is played by Chris Hemsworth, and he dresses as Thor throughout the entire movie without explanation. That's who David is. That's who the heroes of the Old Testament are. They're strong, they're warriors, they're fighters, because they represent a strong and powerful God. You look at Jesus in the New Testament, and you actually, you see a kind of a different personality. When Jesus is in front of Pilate, he says, I could call down legions of angels to protect me if I wanted to. I'm not going to, but I could, but I'm not going to. And Pilate says, don't you know I, I could have you crucified? And Jesus says, you wouldn't have that power if it hadn't been given to you by my Father in heaven. You just remember that, mister. And then he's crucified anyway. In this movie, Jesus is played by like Michael Sarah or Steve Buscemi, I guess. It just doesn't have the same power, the same kick of King David. But I'd warn us against making the mistake of saying that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different gods. That's not the case. And Jesus himself explains his relationship to the Old Testament law. If you look at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, at verse 17, Jesus explains what his role is in relation to the Old Testament scriptures. And this is what he says Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And that's how they referred to all the Old Testament the law the first five books, and the prophets, which is about 17 books in the Hebrew Scriptures. But that's their, <clears throat> their way of saying the whole Bible. Do not think I have come to abolish the Bible. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And the word f- uh, fulfill here in Hebrew, or excuse me, in Greek, is plerao. And plerao is interesting, because when I, when I first read Jesus saying, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In my mind, I think what he's saying is, I've come to obey the law, to keep the law. But that's not what plerao means. When he says to fulfill the law, <clears throat> the word plerao is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe a, a fishing net when it catches a huge load of fish and is so full it cannot be used anymore. There's no more room left in it to catch more. That's plerao, to fulfill. Uh, Another translation might be to complete. I have not come to abolish the law, but to complete the law. And this is important because Jesus is explaining how the Old Testament relates to what he's doing on the earth. For truly I tell you, verse 18, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, everyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And kingdom of heaven is not an afterlife kind of story. It's right now. When we live into the life that God designed for us, we are living in the kingdom of heaven. Anyone who disobeys and teaches others to disobey will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So I haven't come to erase the Hebrew scriptures. In fact, I've come to complete them. What they are still a guide to our lives and will not disappear. Not the, not the slightest stroke will disappear from them. Um, and when he says, not the smallest letter will disappear, he's referring to the Hebrew letter, the Yod, which is so small it looks like an apostrophe. It's this tiny little apostrophe. Not the tiniest apostrophe will disappear from the law until everything is finished. So the Hebrew laws are not erased in Jesus. They are completed in Jesus. Let's talk about what that means. God's plan A for humanity was the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve living in perfect unity with the Father, unseparated from God by sin. Perfect, uninterrupted relationship with the Father. That's how God wanted it. God did not want us to be separated from him. But they rejected God and pushed God away. We as a species rebel against our creator. And we tell God, we don't want to do things your way. We want it our way. <clears throat> we reject God's plan A. So God's plan B for humanity is the law. God says to us, okay, if you want to do life on your own terms, here's the instruction manual. Here's the law. And there are 600 laws in the Hebrew scriptures. Follow every single one of them. And if you fail, you have to take the best animal from your herds and go to the temple and offer it as a sacrifice on the altar. And that animal becomes an object lesson of what you deserve as a person who has rejected the creator of life. If you reject the creator of life, you deserve death but that animal will take death in your place. And it becomes this graphic, horrible object lesson of the consequences of rejecting the creator of life. <clears throat> the consequences of sin is death. So follow the law, and when you fail, offer sacrifices. And that went on for centuries. The Hebrew people for centuries tried to follow the law, failed, offered sacrifices. Tried to follow the law, failed, offered sacrifices. That was God's plan B. But in the fullness of time, God released his plan C for the earth. And God's plan C was the cross of Jesus. On the cross, Jesus became the perfect and final sacrifice, completing the law, so that whoever believes Jesus is a sacrifice for us is completely forgiven. Our sins are wiped clean because Jesus took the punishment we deserve, <clears throat> just like those animals on the altar. God's plan C is grace. So knowing that, why would you ever want to go back to the law? The law did nothing but destroy us. God's grace sets us free. It's like this. When you're on the other side of the cross, when you're before the cross, back in the the season of the Old Testament, you were racked with guilt. You were never good enough. You lived in the shame of the fact that you could not keep God's law. <clears throat> and you kept trying and failing and sacrificing and trying and failing and sacrificing. And that came with nothing but guilt and shame. And the, the legalists felt so guilty 
that they would project their guilt and blame on everybody else. And they would go and scold other people for not being legalistic enough, scold other people for sinning and not keeping the law. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law lived to blame and shame other people. On this side of the cross, we're set free because Jesus has died for us. There is no more guilt to carry. We have nothing to be ashamed of. We are absolutely forgiven in Jesus' name. Knowing that that's true, why would you ever go back to the other side of the cross? Why would you ever put yourself back on the side of shame and guilt and embarrassment and, and angry judgment? You have been set free when you believe in Jesus. That's God's plan C, and it is the, the best thing for us today. The, the Old Testament and the New Testament are not representations of different gods. They're representations of different phases of the law. They're represent, representations of different phases of how God is dealing with us. Because at one point we said, God, we want to do it ourselves without you. We just want to take the instruction manual and do it ourselves. We don't want you leading us. In the New Testament, God says, let me pay the cost for you. Let me set you free. The law now will not be erased. Not the slightest letter will be erased. But the law becomes an expression of our thankfulness for God. We live holy lives to say, thank you for paying the cost for me. And we live holy lives because holiness sets us free. Holiness gives us healthy, uh, healthy lives. Why would you want to go back to sin and brokenness and guilt? The, the Old Testament is not a different God. It's a different phase of the law. It's still under plan B. But in the New Testament, we are on this side of the cross. We are in God's plans, plan C, which is grace. Don't ever get yourself in a place where you write off the God of the Old Testament because it is the same God letting humanity respond to him with rejection to see how bad we are at doing life on our own. And in the New Testament, that same God shows us his grace by dying for us. I understand the temptation to say they're different gods. I understand the temptation of Marcion uh, and the, the modern person sitting in the pews who says, I really feel more attached to Jesus than the God of the Old Testament. But listen, two things. We need a strong God. And number one, we need a strong God. You don't want to reject a strong God because there are times where you're going to wish you had God's strength on your side. There's a, a theologian who has said, if you go through the forest killing off all the predators, you run the risk of being overrun by rodents. <clears throat> if you go through the forest and you kill off all the bears and the wolves and the predators, you'll run the risk of being overrun by rats. And that happens theologically. When we go through the Bible, ruling out all the stories of a, of a harsh and powerful God, we will be overrun by other sins. That's what's happened to modern liberal Protestant theology. The modern liberal Protestant church has said, we want a God who is nice and sweet and gentle, plays with butterflies, always wins at the quiet game. That's what we want. And, and as a consequence, in the dying 
uh, liberal Protestant churches, what they're preaching is uh, being called uh, moral therapeutic deism. Uh, it's not Christian theology. It's moral therapeutic deism. It's moral because it says you should be a nice person. It's therapeutic because it says, there, there, God cares for you. Don't worry too much. And it's deism, which is the belief there's a God up there in the distance, but he doesn't have anything much to do with our lives. Modern liberal Protestantism has pulled out God's teeth so that he is harmless, so that he's safe. But when you do that, you run the risk of being overrun by rodents. One 20th century theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr, has described modern liberal Protestantism this way. He said, in, in modern liberal Protestant theology, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the work of a Christ without a cross. If, if we have no impulse that we will help be held accountable for our willful stupidity, our malicious treatment of other people, our negligence when it comes to caring for the poor, then we will be overrun by the rodents of laziness and irresponsibility. We are looking around at a generation that has been taught. It is not your fault. It's your parents' fault. It's your genetics' fault. It's society's fault. You don't need to be blamed. You just need to be cared for. You need to be better accommodated, and then your life will be better. And it is, it is giving birth to a whole new level of irresponsibility and passive aggression because there's no sense that anyone's going to be held accountable for anything. Listen, I want a strong God. I want a God who's going to hold us accountable. I want a God who says, look, if, if you reject my cross, all you have left is the law. All you have left is to answer for whether or not you lived well enough. Listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come. But woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fires of hell. That's not a weak God. And I don't want a weak God because I want to teach my children that they have a God that they can pray to who loves them and will protect them. I want them to believe in a God who loves them so much that he would die for them to set them free from their own guilt and failures. And I want a strong God who will protect the children of this generation. What are we doing? When we teach God, there's no teach uh, children that there's no accountability to God for the way they live their lives. We are launching them into a world of failures when we do that. I want a God who will protect our children 
and who will be wrathful at those who seek to ruin our children. I don't want a weak God. And there are times when you need a strong God. When the Hebrew people were in slavery and they called out to God to be set free from Pharaoh's dictatorship, they needed a strong God who could do that. When Martin Luther King Jr. wanted a God who would set him free from the horrors of racism and segregation and oppression, he needed a strong God who could do that. I don't want a weak God. And the good news is, secondly, the Bible doesn't offer us a weak God. The Bible offers us a strong God, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is not weak. He did not go to the cross because he had to. He went to the cross because he chose to. He chose to lay down his life for us. He chose to lay down his life for the very people who would reject him and crucify him. It takes an incredible strength to do that. In Jesus, on this side of the cross, in this new phase of the law, we don't see the God of wrath judging us by the, the prospects of the law, which we constantly fail to obey, requiring sacrifice and death of us. In Jesus, we see a God who died for us and set us free from that law because he loved us. It's not the God who will rain fire down on us when we fail. It is the, the God who, like a fireman, would run through the fire, grabbing everyone he could to save them and take them to safety. That's the God I believe in. He's not a weak God. He's a powerful God. He's a God who loved me so much that he would die for me. So let me leave us with this today. <clears throat> Invite Jesus into your life anew today. Recognize that you cannot live on the other side of the cross because the law is too much for you. You will never be good enough to satisfy that law. Thank Jesus for dying for you on the cross. And then surrender to him everything you have and everything you are. Because he is the God who has enough power to protect you and to give you what you need. He's the God who loved you so much that he would die for you. And that's the God that we all need. Pray with me. Jesus, I thank you that you walked the earth to live a perfect, sinless life. And then to die, the ultimate sacrifice on the cross for us. I thank you that you set us free from plan B. Now, God, I ask that your grace would extend to those who have never before known you and called you their Savior. Jesus, we step across that line right now and we say, come into our lives. Forgive us. Make us new. Set us free to new life and to real life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go be the church. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.